Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palenker. We don't have to tell you the world is offering you almost too many entertainment choices these days. Here at Media Path, we pare your choices down and call the worthwhile things to your attention so you can get on with your busy life, kind of like the president's daily briefing. And we welcome guests who have been major players in their field and many times have been a big part of our lives through television or movies. Like who we have today, we're going to welcome Johnny Whitaker. This man has made his way through all corners of the television landscape as one of the most famous child actors. His most memorable work probably came on the show Family Affair from 1966 to 1971 as he played one of the adorable twins, Jody and Buffy. We'll go through the whole arc of his career, which ended up in a really important role that he has now, which is a drug and alcohol counselor. We'll talk all about it to him, Johnny Whitaker, in just a couple of minutes. Wheezy, what do you have for us? Well, I read a book called The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. I like the book a lot. It is fun and intriguing and, to be frank, an imaginative story, but not great literature, okay? It's a back-and-forther, what lit fans are calling dual timelines. We alternate between <laughs> – yes, this is the trend. I like we, the back-and-forther better. That's great. <laughs> we alternate between modern-day American Caroline, who is in London alone after discovering her husband's affair, and an 18th-century apothecary named Nella – whose revenge has bent her healing potions into poisons. Caroline, in search of her true north, goes on a history adventure in the Thames River and discovers an old vial inscribed with a bear. And her scrappy research leads her to the legend of a hidden apothecary in 1791, servicing the needs of women until the only way to save them was to murder their abusive men with poison. The storylines, themes, and self-discoveries of Nella and Caroline weave in and around one another as Caroline finds her future in exploring the past. The reader savors the adventure while wrestling with the morality of it all and perhaps hiring a food taster. I enjoyed the ride. The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner has almost 30,000 Amazon reviews. It was an instant New York Times bestseller, and you may like it too. It is certainly a hit with the sleuthy sisterhood set. And you got some interesting domestic tips. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What have you been up to? Well, I, I watched another Netflix documentary because, as you know, I am the doc doc. These are the things that I consume mm -hmm. feverishly. Mm -hmm. This one is called, and I know you watched it. I did. And I can't wait to talk to you about mm -hmm. it. It's called Keep Sweet. Even the title of this is creepy. So creepy. So creepy. Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. It's a four-parter. There have been a lot of stories and a lot of reporting on Warren Jeffs, who was the now-jailed prophet and president of the FLDS, which is the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints organization. Full disclosure, this has nothing to do with the regular LDS church, which is regular Mormon church. This is a completely separate sect, sort of rejected by most of the rest of the Mormon church. It's an extreme polygamist offshoot denomination. It's essentially a cult headed by Warren Jeffs. Most of the other reports and documentaries that appeared at the time of Jeffs' arrest just talked about the hideous crimes of Warren Jeffs. But this one represents the viewpoints of the victims, in particular the victims who miraculously were able to escape the clutches of the cult. There are disturbing interviews with women who have escaped and were excommunicated, yet still have family members living under Jeffs' spell. He's been in prison, but is still recognized as the prophet and president of FLDS and still controls thousands of people's lives from behind bars. It's fascinating. What makes it so different from other cult scenarios that we're all familiar with, Jonestown and Waco and all those, is that this sect is three and four generations deep. Jeff's assumed control of the sect from his father. So these young women and their parents and their parents' parents know no other life. They have no experience outside this very scary and controlled environment. So to what do they escape? Literally, it seems like another planet to them. This is really hard to watch in places, but important and mesmerizing. At the time of his arrest, Jeff's had 78 wives. 24 were underage. One was 12. Jeff's also married underage girls to the older church members who were sometimes three and four times the ages of their young wives. 
You're no doubt aware of the tragic discovery just yesterday of 59 people dead in the back of a tractor trailer in San Antonio, Texas. This has been considered the largest human trafficking operation in the United States. Well, Warren Jeffs was considered by U.S. law enforcement as to have been running the world's largest sex trafficking operation. It's a fascinating look at a mega cult and the manipulation of human behavior. I found it fascinating, but very disturbing. Well, I have some thoughts about this. I want to hear it. And I've written them down. Okay, please. Okay. I believe that danger lies within the most extreme version of any religion, and that's because deranged personalities can play upon the devotion of the followers. The more fervent your belief in the leader, the less likely you will be to question absurdities, abuse, even the loss and violation of your own children. And with this story of the FLDS, we are so focused on the horrors faced by the girls that we barely notice what is happening to the boys. When only certain men get multiple wives, the math is not going to work out for the boys. And so the tiniest infraction gets them excommunicated. There are hundreds of boys cast out into the world as young as 13. This is especially traumatic since they have been raised not to trust the outside world and to believe that leaving their communities is a sin worse than murder. With little education or skills applicable to life outside of their community, they have to learn how to live in a society they inherently distrust. Some kids become homeless or end up in the criminal justice system. They also must endure the emotional toll of being shunned by their families and believing that they are beyond spiritual redemption. The families of these banished boys are told that the boys are now dead to them. It's, it's just horrible. It's just horrible. It's horrible, but so fascinating the yeah. psychology behind it, and and the weird um, thing for me was this very almost um, this gargantuan ability of. Um, suspending your disbelief to be able i mean this guy reuben jeffs or whatever rufus jeffs or his father warren he just decided no i mean his dad handed him over the thing to warren and they were able to convince people to say no that's how you do it your dad just hands you the business like the family business it's like the guy at liberty university they said well you know my son's been blessed i'll just hand the business to him but you know what it reminded it's me of joke. like okay so yeah warren is the guy who's in prison right now and mm. the father's name was whatever rufus it was. Or yeah okay so, but it like, and Warren wasn't the oldest, but he was the one that the dad m- believed to be the most evil, and therefore, and it, it reminded me of- And the, the most able, he had just the right dark charisma right. to manipulate all these But people. it reminded me of the Trump family, where the dad goes, goes you know, like the next one down, which is the, the father of Mary Trump, and goes, no, this one, Donald, <laughs> he'll do. You know, the one that kisses up to the father probably the most, or most subservient, or the most devious, or, you know, has those traits. the most laser-like eyes uh, I've ever seen. Just looking at that guy gives me the creeps. Demon- no, that's a great, that's a great observation. It really yeah, is. it's like, oh, and it, yeah, another example, <laughs> these are crazy examples, is Kim Jong-un. You know, because he was not even like one of his main kids. He was a kid from like another a, 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 a mom kid. that wasn't even one of the wives or something like that. But yeah. it's like, oh, oh, he's dark. Let's pick but him. He has to have the chops. You know oh, right? yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> They're looking for the most <laughs> twisted kid, you know, and it was probably the same with Saddam Hussein and Uday and Hussein, whatever the heck was going on. But, but yeah. it also I, I, I like your observation about the men, too. I didn't even mention that. And the thing I was so over, maybe because I have a daughter, I was just so overtaken with what a horrible position and how brave these girls were to try to escape. No, it's it's definitely usually overlooked because it, what's happening to the girls is just so horrific and that we're just focused on on that. But, you know, the the math is not going to work out. No, no. And the, the only unless way, you're eighty and you're getting a twenty four year old wife, you're out of the mix. Right. They they Oof. see boys as a threat. You know, and and you know, in the piece, how the girls talked about the boy they had a crush on and everything. Like you, even those all all of our natural inclinations are just completely snuffed and vilified, and you're meant to feel dirty and guilty, and it's just horrible stuff. And. Um, it goes back to one of my universal uh, complaints about organized religion and how they're treated by the federal government. How uh, could this 
and I, I know it was prosecuted after a while, but how could this this template, this business model, even exist in the United States, but because it had a religious basis, they allowed him to get away with this, even if it wasn't extreme, even without a 12-year-old wife, but it was a 24-year-old wife, and, they, and, they, and, and it pops up in Scientology. How do they give them a tax break? I don't get, I, they, they, you know, they, they don't have to pay taxes because they technically qualify as a, quote, religion. I, it just drives me nuts how these guys get a free pass. Well, Scientology actually just harassed the tax board like personally yeah until they finally relented so you know but what you have to keep in mind is like throughout the ages religions have existed and brainwashed people to do their bit like the opiate of the masses is the phrase that we often hear so we don't know about the religions that existed before we got here and now we have communication systems that allow us to be aware of these atrocities taking place all, all over all over the world but these types of religious indoctrinations have gone on because none of us humans know why we're here and that's a vulnerability Mm-hmm. that folks can pray on. But if it was such an embarrassment to the regular Mormon church, the LDS church, why haven't they sued for names? Say, this doesn't represent our religion at all. It, it's amazing they haven't put pressure on them to sort of separate themselves with name and function and everything and not call themselves Mormon. Well, or Maybe you can't. I don't know. I mean, there's definitely cults calling themselves Christian. Yeah. yeah. That, are, that are just... Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's very hard to watch if, if you have kids... Uh, you will, you will, it will turn your stomach, but it's, a, it's the, one of the great studies of human nature. Man, it was really good. Yeah, and also the Muslim, the Muslim religion does not in any way identify with terrorist organizations. No, so. no, it's the same thing. No. All right, let's welcome our guest. There he is. Hello, welcome hello. to Johnny's Fantastic. Busy Day, starring Johnny Whitaker. <laughs> All right, you ready to Johnny go, Johnny? woke up in one zip code. Had mm. breakfast in another zip code, drove to a third zip code, and then off he was to the fourth zip code. That's it. We caught him in a rare stationary pose. Now we're going to welcome our guest. This man has been acting since he was three. Not an exaggeration to say he's been on every major television show of the 60s and 70s. I mean, Bewitched and General Hospital and Gunsmoke and Bonanza, the Virginian, you name it, including one of the most famous shows of our guest two weeks ago, Marty of Sid and Marty Croft Productions, Sigmund and the Sea Monster. But his most recognizable role was one of the adorable twins, Jody and Buffy, on Family Affair, which ran from 1966 to 1971. The handsome bachelor uncle was played by Brian Keith. His valet, I love Mr. French, was Mr. French, played by Sebastian Cabot. And the older sister of the twins was Sissy, played by Kathy Garver. Then the focal point of the show, I thought, was Jody and Buffy, played by you and Anissa Jones. And the only unpaid character on the show was Mrs. Beasley, the doll, who Johnny has some very interesting takes on. I can't wait to talk to him about Mrs. Beasley. In 1999, he received the Young Artist Former Child Star Award at the 20th Youth Film Awards. Flash forward to Johnny somehow surviving this child stardom to do his life's probably most important work, I think you would agree, being a certified drug and alcohol counselor. That is doing the Lord's work, my friend. We're going to get all into it. Johnny Whitaker is with us. Johnny, we're so happy to have you. Well, thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us, Johnny. Um, Let's start out with talking about your early childhood, because at a very young age, it was clear that you enjoyed performing and that you were good at it. So by the time you're three years old, you have adults needing for you to do your job well in order for them to make a living. Did you feel that pressure or were were the grownups in your world always able to make it fun and interesting for you? Well, one of the things that I do, I, I teach acting to children and adults, mm-hmm. and my one speech that I give to kids is that your number one job is to be a kid and to have fun. Mm-hmm. Number two job is to make me and your mom and dad look good. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes your fun doesn't follow through with looking good they're not always in alignment yeah you know so you have to sometimes cut some of the fun to make us look good but number one job is just to have fun and enjoy being a kid Mm -hmm. and how was that for you did do you remember feeling pressure or do you remember it being fun that you got to go and do this every day well i didn't know any different than waking up at 6.30 in the morning, 
getting breakfast and with the rest of the family, mom getting me into the car by, you know, seven and then uh, driving to the studio and being there by eight, going into wardrobe and then going into um, school uh, by, you know, by eight, ten and then just waiting until I was called on the set and uh, ran to the set, did my lines, came off. Then around, uh, you know, 1231 o'clock, we had uh, our lunch and we got an hour for lunch and uh, came back and did it all again. And then by five o'clock, we left, got in the car, went home. That was my day. And I, I mean, that was what was normal to me. No going to the playground. No, you know, getting together with your friends under a tree somewhere. You did not have a typical childhood, which I think you will agree led to some of your complications a little bit later on. And, and while we're on the topic, do you do, do you have any thoughts about? And I know you have this wonderful Facebook uh, ex child star page uh, with Paul Peterson, which it, it really helps people. But do you have a, an opinion about parents? Uh, uh, sort of injecting their kids into this lifestyle and they make kid themselves into thinking they're not causing the child to do this, but there's some parental expectation there. So the kid does what his parents want. How do you feel about kids starting out too young? Well, I started out at uh, three and a half and I liked performing. I liked having people applaud for me. Um, and as long as the child understands that this is fun and I mean, my, my parents always told me that if at any time, uh, when I was getting any role, they told me, you know, now this is going to be a lot of work and this is going to be a lot of time and you're going to be away from the family. Do you, you know, and I was six, seven, you know, eight years old. And I had to understand, um, I mean, there are um, five stages of adolescence that anyone is supposed to go through. And one of those is choosing your career path. Another is choosing your companions um, and your, you know, your group. I had a career already chosen for me and I already had people who were my peers uh, that were 20 and 30 years older than I was. Mm -hmm. So it is very difficult. I think children need not have to know everything that goes on. I think it's important that they are aware of it as much as their age and um, their uh you know, they're growing up is allowing it. But, uh, you know, my parents always asked me every time before I did a job, you know, do you want to do this? This is your choice. Um, it got bad when they told me that it was my choice when I didn't want to do the film Tom Sawyer. Oh, you didn't want to do it? Well, that was that summer. I had just done a the summer before I had worked all summer and I worked all winter and I worked all spring doing some Disney films and um, my mom and dad had me go. Uh, well, I wanted to go to Boy Scout camp mm -hmm. and mom and dad uh, wouldn't pay for my Boy Scout camp out of my money. I had to make it like all the other boys did, which was going door to door selling um, something or other. And uh, so I went door to door selling greeting cards is what it was. And um, I made the $250 for Boy Scout camp for the week. Mm. And um, when it came time for Tom Sawyer, I, you know, I said, well, I'm going to be in Boy Scout camp, so I can't do it. And my agent and mom and dad said, well, just go meet with the producers and see what's going on. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll meet with them, but I doesn't mean I'm going to do anything. So I met uh, with the producers and was did was on um, 
screen test with Jodie Foster and Jeff East. And um, they said, you got the role. We want you. And you need to be in Missouri in two weeks. And I said, I'm not going to be in Missouri in two weeks. In two (laughs) weeks, I'm going to be at Boy Scout camp up in, uh, you know, and they go, no, no, no. We're going to. I said, "Uh uh-uh, sorry. My mom and dad made me make money selling door to door. And it's my 250 bucks that I put on the line. So they changed. Well, they did the two days that they could without Tom Sawyer (laughs) filming and then brought me in in a helicopter that flew into the Boy Scout camp to took take me back to LAX, which I was mortified. But um, I just said, you know, that was my choice. You, mom and dad, they made me go door to door. And that was my 250 bucks. That's the good thing your parents did. They let you feel like you had some control over your life, which was very healthy for you. I like that. You know, (laughs) it's a a tough call for, for parents because, you know, your job as a parent to see if you recognize little nuggets of talent in your child. And if you see a child that has this natural charisma as you did. Uh, and and say, well, we would be selling him short if we didn't give him an opportunity to use this talent. So it's this balancing act that parents do. But you're saying don't be obsessive on the other side. Give control to the to the child. Oh, absolutely. That the child must make it must be as as developed as the child is to be able to make mm-hmm. a decision that he or she knows that she made that that he or she made that decision along with the parents well what is it that psychologically that happens to the parents when the child experiences a little bit of success because i i I think it's probably a lot like a drug you know very exciting entertainment is a drug Mm -hmm. being in the entertainment industry um you guys want me, right? right? I mean, today to be here, I want to be there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would stop whatever I'm doing and come and do it because it's, you know, yes, I'm a part of the entertainment business mm-hmm. and it's fun and it's exciting. Um, so overall, it, I mean, it is, it, it is uh, a drug. It is uh, addicting um, the money because in show business, Today, especially, the money is very good, and um, money can be addicting as well. But uh, all of it is, you know, we need to understand that you have to put the brakes on. Mm -hmm. You know, there's um, moderation. moderation in all things absolutely mm-hmm. uh, I, I want to talk about your experience with brian keith early because he was the conduit for you to get family affair which was this beautiful warm show and i loved all the characters and uh, uh, he, you had done a project with him earlier and then they even changed the ages of the characters you and anissa uh, were currently at because they loved your chemistry so much tell that story well um i did the russians are coming the russians are coming with brian keith his motel room was just a couple doors up from mine. He had two daughters, and I believe that he and his wife were going to adopt some children. Anyway, he had two girls, and he wanted to know what it's like to have a boy, so he made sure to come and play with Johnny Whittacoe, and <laughs> um, we threw the ball around and had a good time. And um, when it came time for him to do family affair, he specifically asked for me to be, uh, you know, to be in the screen test as maybe, a you know, a neighbor or something. Uh, the original cast was a 16-year-old girl, a 10-year-old boy, and a 6-year-old girl. But when they saw me with Anissa Jones... They said, we're going to change it to twins. And um, so because of Brian, I got on the set. He said, I don't care. This kid has talent. This kid, he's great. I want him on the show. So I got on the show. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is. Can you describe the personalities of 
each of your Family Affair co-stars? Well, we'll start with Anissa, mm-hmm. who unfortunately died of an overdose in 2000, in uh, 1976. She was almost two years old, a year and a half older than I, mm-hmm. but very small for her age. Mm. She hated as she got older. Um, I, we stopped family for when I was 11 and she was already 13. They wanted her to continue wearing the Buffy braids or, you know, the ponytails and all of that. And she hated that. Um, they had a Buffy line of clothes along with a Jody line of clothes. And during the hiatuses, we would go out throughout the country and we would do um, fashion shows with the clothes in the big malls all over. And did you participate in the profits of that early merchandise? That was a question I had. Personally, no. My family. Oh, okay. That's, that's what <laughs> um, I meant. So but me sounds, personally, no. I mean, it sounds yeah, like well, you know you did whatever was necessary, whatever was asked of you. And then as Buffy, as Buffy, as as Anissa got a little bit older, she kind of resisted some of this. Well, it was just, you know, she wanted to be a teenager. Mm-hmm. She was 13. And um, she was trying to do the best she could. But her mother um, did not believe in God. And I remember in our um, educational pursuits, um, uh Anissa's mother made sure to tell our teacher, uh, Mrs. Dini, that, you know, if the subject ever goes on to religion, you need to stop it because I do not want. They knew that I was very um, religious with the Latter-day Saint Mormon faith, and they didn't want she did not want Anissa to be involved in any of that. And I just remember one time while we were doing schooling that the subject had something to do with religion or God. And Anissa said, I believe in God, but don't you tell my mother I said that. (laughs) So, you know, that was the first that I had that, you know, there was some dynamic that was very bad. I had found out after family affair. Well, when Anissa and I found out that family affair was canceled, we were on a junket somewhere in the middle of the United States. And um, we had just planned to do a Don Federson newspaper um, and be the writers. We had started it the, the year before, just a couple of little deals that we would send out and we made five cents her copy (laughs) and uh, we didn't have to pay the production company, but we got the money. Um, And so, you know, we would make a hundred copies and it was, you know, whose birthday is it this month and who's having something. And we were little, you know, writers, part of our schooling. And we were going to then expand to the other sets. And uh, that's what got us most upset that we would not be able to go on and have our names known in the uh, world of of news. Journalism. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. So it, as far as, you know, what you could, you got along with her fine while you were doing the show. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, we were like brother and sister. We mm-hmm. would fight. But, uh, you know, like brothers and sisters do, we fight, but we get back together and we accept. Um, Kathy Garver, sissy. Uh, was older. Um, she actually was 21 playing a 16 year old. And um, we happened to have the same birthdays, oh. December 13th. Um, but, you know, she was nice. And when she wanted to, she would play with the kids. And when she didn't, she would play with the adults. Um, but you know, she was nice. And, you know, we got along fairly well. Um, and then Sebastian Cabot yeah. was very proper and everything that uh, when we went to play and we were around Sebastian, he'd say, the actor prepares. <laughs> Would you like to go over your lines? <laughs> you know, and unless there was 
a, a newspaper or somebody there. Then he would make sure to bring the kids in and read us from Winnie the Pooh or something, as long as it was something that they could do for, uh, you know, for publicity. Then, of course, the kids, you know, family affair was Buffy and Jody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, every, everybody else were just extras. <laughs> That's pretty much the way it went down. Tell us about Brian Keith. Brian Keith, um, he was with us only three out of the nine months. Oh, he did a Fred McMurray. Exactly. That is how they got Fred McMurray, Don Federson Productions. They got Brian Keith telling him that he only has to work three months out of the nine months. And so all of the scripts that he was in, all of his scenes we did in the first three months. And then we would do all the rest of the scenes of everybody else for the next six months. Um, So we would be going from script 21 to script five to script eight to script 27 to script four all in one day. And so, let um, me just stop you right there. So when you get home from work every afternoon, did you have to memorize sides or I mean, you, you had to commit a good deal to memory. So you, you your work, your day, even though it went till five o'clock, which would kill a child, you had to keep working beyond that memorizing your copy. Right. Um, I had to um, be on point and on, you know, on script. Um, And what happened is on the way home from work, I would read the next day's lines. Then I would have dinner and play with my brothers and sisters. My mother would then um, read me my lines while I was sleeping. The next morning in the car on the way to work, I'd go through them again. And then when we got onto the set, you know, that's the way that I memorized. Did your siblings feel like they got less of your parents' attention because your career required so much? You know, as I got older and as I am older (laughs) and uh, my brothers and sisters and I am one of eight children. Mm -hmm. um, There was definitely some animosity and some frustration and some family members are more upset about it than others Mm. but um, most everyone kind of accepted the fact that we got to go to Disneyland for free anytime we wanted to Mm -hmm. Um, and you know there were certain perks we got to move into a big home from a little home Mm. Um, and so some of the kids just, uh, you know, kind of took it in stride. Now, I'm kind of the middle of eight, if there can be a middle. <laughs> um, but I'm the youngest of the first group, which was one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple of years for me, and then a couple of years after me, and then one, two, three. So I'm the oldest of the younger generation and the youngest of the older generation kind of a little bit of both worlds. My younger brothers and sisters, um, my younger sister, Mary, she was in the classroom scenes with me. So she got to come on the set and be an extra. And um, so everybody got a chance to, you know, to be in show business. My sister, my brother and sister, Dora and Bill, um, did some animation voices. Uh, If you watch the film, uh, Robin Hood. My baby sister Dora plays um, Tagalong Rabbit, and my brother plays Skippy the Rabbit, <laughs> who are the ones. And um, you know, so they they got a chance to to work, not as prolifically as I did, but they did. And my sister Dora continues today to have her own production company and uh, uh, entertainment conglomerate well you you talked about being able to go to disneyland for free and and on the topic of disney you did three disney movies four 
for Disney movies, and, and you, you, you were wise beyond your years because you tried to talk your parents into buying Disney stock. <laughs> and uh, talk, and it, at the time, it was 99 cents a share. So talk about that. Well, um, when I, I, I did four Disney movies in, in the year in 1971. Wow. And they were also preparing for Walt Disney World at the Disney Studios any corner they could. And uh, one of the artisans uh, be- became a friend of mine, you know, like uh, those are my peers. And I would come and watch him at lunch, sculpt things. And um, he said, you know, Johnny, they're putting uh, Disney is giving one for one stock options. Um <laughs> How old Do you know you? what a stock How option old is? At the time? How... I was 11. <laughs> and... well, let's talk about your portfolio. <laughs> and I and I, you know, so what's what's a stock option? He says, well, what you do is you get your check from Disney, and any money that you give back to Disney, they will match it with like Disney bucks, you know, Disney dollars, <laughs> and. It was on about my second or third film. I said, Mom, Dad, you know, let's put in half of the money from this next film, which was about $15,000 of films. That would be 7,500 bucks into Disney stock. And Disney will give me $7,500 in Disney stock. That would have been 15,000 shares of Disney stock. And today, <laughs> that would be worth, if nothing happened from that time to this, that would be worth about $50 million. <laughs> your parents didn't take your financial <laughs> advice? I mean, how, how could they turn you down at 11 years old? Well, though? I mean, eight kids, that's how. Oh, okay. Yeah. They had eight kids. Good, good point. So now you teach you teach a class called Actors Toolkit, and and you say it's not just for actors that any everybody can learn. Oh, sure. All of us grow up as children, and we lie, <laughs> or we don't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are acting all the time. I mean, if you've had children or nieces or nephews, you've seen them have a temper tantrum and get over it just like that. <laughs> that's acting. Yeah. You know, um, and that's able to turn on the waterworks or turn it off. And as a child, we learn all of these things. And as an adult, we need to know how to, you know, turn on the charm and turn it off or be however we can to um, get what we want. You know, it's um, when we're asking for a raise, we need to turn on the charm and have proof, but we have to act it out a little bit. And uh, I always tell people, especially if you're coming up for a raise or, or, or something like that, first thing is you need to practice it, you know, uh, kind of gestalty. Um, in front of the mirror or whatever, but, uh, you know, do both sides and and prepare for it. But uh, yeah, that's exactly uh, actors. I think, uh, well, Fritz, you're a good actor. Oh, I Um, I like to think I'm in the Shakespearean class of acting. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, we have to take on different roles and in life and however we can best perform those roles, the better outcome Mm -hmm. can come from those roles that we have created. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you got to be good cop, bad cop, whatever it is. That's a really interesting point that everybody acts every day just to get by in their lives. They really do. What what he's saying is not just the performance, but like reading the room and knowing which performance to put on. Yeah. Exactly. So that you can, that, that, you know, because so much of life is really meeting other people's needs and meeting them where they'd like to be, but don't even realize they'd like to be there. So how can we help each other? And, right. and well, the language that I use when I go to the, um, uh, to the jail here in, uh, up in, um, uh, mm-hmm. I do that about twice a month. 
my language and my demeanor has to change from being a good Christian boy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and saying, you know, grow the F up, right, guys. Right, Come right. on. You know, you need to uh, take responsibility for your actions. And, you know, one of the things is doing the time that you're doing here. Great. But it's not the same person that I'm going to be when I'm teaching my uh, DUI class. Um, but, you know, we have different roles every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, you come home, you're a mom, you're a dad, you come to work, you're a, a worker among workers or whatever the case is. Those are the things that you do. Life is method acting. He, I just learned that from him. It yeah, really it's, it's... Hey, uh, I want to talk about uh, you being a DUI teacher because this is a thing that's very dear to me in my own personal life without getting in, in, too far into the weeds. But the darkness of your life came from a not unfamiliar story among child stars. You lapsed into drug and alcohol abuse when, when, when you were young, and you're very forthcoming about that, and I've seen interviews the way you really, very honestly, share your story. But there's an added part of your equation. You came from a Mormon family, and probably, I don't know if all of your uh, siblings were teetotalers, but I have Mormon friends who won't even drink a Dr. Pepper, I mean, depending on how devoted you are to it. So there was the extra pressure of really going outside the rails in your family situation, right, when you, when you started. Well... I was a virgin when I got married at 24 years old Mm -hmm. and my wife and I, um, you know, consummated the the, the marriage on our wedding night and I was very excited and happy. And uh, four years later, she decided to divorce me and marry the man who gave me my bachelor party. Oh my goodness. And that, sent my belief structure and my faith to be waning and waddling. And I met up with a young lady and her four and a half year old daughter who um, I kind of fell in love with a four year and a half year old as a dad figure, you know, very mm-hmm. nice and positive, nothing weird. Mm-hmm. But um, and she introduced me to her mother and we started a relationship and even though it was verboten, we did have uh, physical knowledge, carnal knowledge. She became pregnant. Um, her daughter was the product of a rape oh, no. and decided to keep the baby. But when she was pregnant with my child, she wasn't sure if she wanted to keep the baby. Mm. And I told her, sorry, but, you know, whatever's going to happen, I'll raise the child if you don't want to. But she had a lot more uh, other problems emotionally and unfortunately chose to take her life and the life of my baby. Oh, oh my God. I'm sorry. And um, that same week or the next oh. week, I got a letter saying that my divorce was final. And I had made a decision that God did not exist and that I was going to the dark side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I made a conscious decision to do so. And so in making that decision, it was not difficult to go into bars, go into places and start a life of sex, drugs, rock and roll. Plus you were, you were self-medicating. I mean, you were trying to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, found that I loved the way that alcohol and drugs made me feel and that I could either feel better than anybody else or not feel anything. And that was, you know, vacillating between the two. But um, my family came up and found out that I was smoking marijuana. They didn't know about the meth and the coke and (laughs) the heroin that I'd done. But they thought that I was, you know, bad because I was smoking marijuana. Anyway, they said uh, that I had to go into treatment. And so I did. And um, I realized that my sponsor is in the 12 step program, you have a guide, a spiritual guide. And my sponsor told me that I had to find God. And I said, I don't want God. I already did that. And he told me that I could have any kind of a God or any kind of a higher being that I wanted. And so um, 
I chose good orderly direction and group of drunks and druggies, G-O-D. And um, that's how I accepted it. And then in about four years of recovery, I found my own higher power, which I, you know, today is the Lord Jesus Christ and my father in heaven. Um, and actually three years ago, I was rebaptized into the Mormon faith. And now I'm a full-fledged card-carrying member of the LDS church. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. May I, if you'll permit me to ask you, and I really appreciate your honesty, how, how, your family did an intervention. How did that work? That's a pivotal moment in, in somebody's life. Well, my youngest sister had a friend uh, who was an interventionist. And um, one Sunday, the family got together and I was not allowed to be in the room when they were talking and I had to go watch the, the grandkids. I didn't know what was going on, but, you know, screw them anyway. Um, and then the next week, I was the star of the day. And each of my family members told me how much they loved me. And then my younger brother gave me a contract saying, if you want to see your nieces and nephews ever again, you need to do A, B, C, D, and E. And had they not, you know, seeing the adults, I didn't care about them, but I did care about my, my nephews, especially the three that lived in the vicinity where I did. Um, they were very important to me. And so for that reason, I decided to get sober and clean. And, um, you know, thanks to them, I, I, you know, I've got almost 25 years now. And there's a gift and, in that experience because now you're saving lives and you're, you're, you're making the planet a better place, which I always love those third acts. Well, I try to. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you do not have to have gone through everything that I did to help other people who have a drug or alcohol problem. But when I'm able to use my stories and the situations that I went through to understand how this deal works about recovery, because the brain of an addict alcoholic is very different from a brain of a non-addict alcoholic. And it is that brain chemistry and that brain information that I love to share with other people so that they know the reason that um, an addict or an alcoholic can't stop drinking or can't stop doing drugs is because their body and their mind, their emotions and their spirit are all futzed up. Mm -hmm. And until they can kind of get all of those four things together, um, you're going to continue to drink and use. So you, you, we spoke earlier of the, the Facebook group for ex-child actors. Since you truly understand trauma, are you the guy that fellow former child stars call when they are in distress or in crisis? I am available and open, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, when Lindsay Lohan had her first little troubles back when, mm -hmm. I actually called... Uh, and spoke with somebody who was in charge of her and told them my name and my background and my information. And I said, you know, I'm here. I'd love to be able to talk with her and help her. Oh, we've got it all taken care of. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, then she went way off the rails. And then, you know, now supposedly things are okay. But, um, you know, I am always available especially with, um, I, I do interventions today oh, in do? English, Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Now, yeah, how did you, see, you're a very gifted person because you're also good at tech and you're just a really, really kind of renaissance guy. Yeah, how, you were how, like a computer specialist at CBS for a while, right? You, you're, you're a techie. Yes. But how did you yeah, master was, all, all these languages? When did you have time for that? Well, Jodie Foster and I, when we did uh, the film um, Napoleon and Samantha, which was my second Disney film, Jodie was preparing to go into Le Lycée Francais. And so her mother insisted that the social worker teacher that we had that summer be fluent in French. And 
you can only speak a language if you have somebody to speak with. Mm -hmm. And so Jody and I practiced French together. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I remember was, c'est une voiture, répétez. Mm -hmm. This is a car, repeat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're a certified drug and alcohol counselor. And, and, and do you work with a specific facility or are you a freelance? I know you do prison work. And uh, well, I, I currently work for a, uh, uh, a center for counseling and education in um, Canoga Park, and um, it's a DUI school, but I also have private clientele uh, and do interventions and um, help, like I said, in the four different languages. Uh, including actually uh, American Sign Language. Wow, but um, And I've been able to use all of them. But um, I, you know, as an interventionist, as a drug and alcohol counselor, um, we just keep on doing the do, you know. And um, when people call, I try to help them out as best I can. Um, sometimes the problem is greater than I can help or they don't have the finances. So I need to find them someplace that they can go. I have a nonprofit called Paso por Paso, which means step by step mm -hmm. in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And that's specifically to help the non-English speaking addict, alcoholic find treatment and recovery. And, um, you know, many times they don't have the finances to go into a, a program. Uh, but, you know, we will do our best to help them. And, uh, you know, Anissa Jones, she died um, in 1976 of a drug and alcohol overdose. And about 12 years ago, I started with another organization to celebrate um, Overdose Awareness Day, which is August 31st. And this year... On September 10th, I'm going to have a free to the public uh, open um, Zoom call. And it's a uh, remembering lives lost and lives recovered. And we name each of the 150 names that we get with 25 more every year of people who have died of an overdose death. Where do they find and, out information about that? That sounds very um, they inspirational. They can go to johnnywhitaker.com mm -hmm. and or um, overdoseawareness0831 at gmail is where they can send the information or johnny at johnnywhitaker.com. They can ask for more information and definitely um, if anyone has a family member or a friend who is died due to an overdose, then if you send us their name and some information about them, we will make sure to put them this year on our list. If those individuals wish to share three to five minutes about the life of their loved one, they're welcome to. As we read each of the names, many famous, many infamous, and I've got seven that I have Anissa was the first, and then uh, Lonnie O'Grady, who was the oldest sister in Eight is Enough. Mm -hmm. She was like a sister to me, and mm -hmm. she died of a mixture of op opiates and uh, uh, mental health meds. Um, Eric Douglas, who is uh, mm -hmm. Michael Douglas's half-brother, mm -hmm. died of a cocaine overdose. Um, and then Dana Plato, I was her last manager, and she died of an overdose and 11 years to the day of her mother's death of his mother's death her son uh shot himself uh in a drug-induced rage and so then uh celeste holm actually who played aunt polly mm -hmm. while she was in the hospital she was um overdosed by the hospital no um and she died. And I, ne um, I never heard that. Wow. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I mean, and, you know, overdose. I do not believe people who die of overdoses really wanted to kill themselves. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. In Anissa's 
um, situation because of the amount that was there. It's kind of definite that, you know, she was trying to, but the only thing that we do as addicts and alcoholics is we try not to feel or try to have feel differently. And we do not know, nor especially today with the fentanyl, um, that is injected and put into a lot of the drugs. We don't know how much or how little is there. And 50 times and, stronger than heroin. That's an awful, awful chemical. Yes. And just three little beads is enough to kill you. I, 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 I'm guessing then that you're a fan of this Narcan distribution, this free distribution Absolutely. system. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Yes. I, I have taught uh, the distribution. I've taught people how to use it. Um, I've never used it myself. You know that I've I've needed it, but I have it. And uh, when I find people who are on the street, and I have, a, you know, something in my car, and um, you know, I'll go to them. I'll give them a quick lesson, and then give them because you can't just give it to them. They have to be educated about how to use it. Mm-hmm. But you know, I am an authorized educator, and so you know, I will do that. And it, you know, it has saved thousands of lives. Mm-hmm. What a blessing. Now, you have some other upcoming events before we close. I know you've got a Tom Sawyer Golden Anniversary coming up and uh, Western Legends Heritage and Music Festival. So tell us about those events. And we'll have all of this information in our show notes. If you're listening in your car, don't do anything dangerous. <laughs> Just go home and check the show notes, and we've got all the links for you. Beautiful. Well, yes. Um, on July the July Fourth weekend, um, we will have um, fifty years since we filmed the the film Tom Sawyer in the little town of Arrow Rock, Missouri, which is on the Missouri River, not the Mississippi, but it's on the west side of uh, the Missouri. And that's the Tom and, Sawyer musical. Oh yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have. Um, that whole weekend, lots of different free events, and uh, lots of I'm, fence painting. People, <laughs> come on! Do you pay for the fence painting? Come for the balloons, stay for the fence painting. <laughs> exactly, and and but um, myself and Joshua Hill Lewis, who was um, cousin Sydney, oh, are going to be there. Okay, and I, I've got Frank Capra the third, oh. who. Um, Jeff East, myself, he and the three other boys played Spin the Bottle while we were filming Tom Sawyer. Uh-huh. But um, he's going to join us along, along with uh, Jeff East from France. And I haven't gotten it settled down yet, but Jodie Foster um, has agreed to send some, something to us. Oh. Hopefully she can join us. And um, then uh, we're going to, on the 4th of July, Monday, we're going to have a big picnic out in the same park where they had the 4th of July picnic in um, in the film. Mm-hmm. And then the end of August, I'll be in southern Utah at the Western Legends. I filmed um, Gunsmoke, two episodes of Gunsmoke there. And uh, we I'm invited there the last three years to uh, meet up with fans and friends and uh, go down the the uh, parade route with in a horse and <laughs> get to be a cowboy for the day. <laughs> I, I just want to ask you one more question and then we'll, we'll close up. And, uh, but do you find in the darkness of the world that we currently find ourselves in that people are really seeking those older things and you can name any of the shows you were involved in. I'll say family affair because there was so much love emanating from the TV screen with that show. And Tom Sawyer's, you know, come on, it's the iconic thing. Do you find people are seeking that stuff out more in some of these independent channels like the Me Channel and what are the other ones that have? Uh, but, but, I mean, it seems like people are reveling in that right now. The old Andy Griffith shows and all that just because it was a gentler, more human time. Well, parents especially don't know what to trust. Good point. They can look at a film or a TV show, you know, Netflix or Hulu or whatever, and think, wow, this sounds like a really good thing. And it, and then all of a sudden there's sex, drugs, and, mm-hmm. you know, 
they don't they can't trust it mm-hmm. um you can definitely trust the old shows yeah yeah they are thing they are shows that everybody loves love to watch and love to watch today and they can feel comfortable and say yes you can watch every single one of these episodes and not have any concern whatsoever mm-hmm. well johnny whitaker you are a hero and i want to just thank you for being with us i'm gonna well thank our, you i'm gonna read our closing credits right now thank you so much for joining us we thank would you love, johnny we would love to continue this conversation with you on instagram and twitter where we are at media path pod and on facebook where our show page is media path podcast and our facebook group is media path with fritz and wheezy podcast community you can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our youtube channel media path podcast you can write to us at media path podcast at gmail.com If you enjoyed this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple or on Spotify, and we would just really appreciate you for that. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at MediaPathPodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Johnny Whitaker. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and tell us your last name, Chris. Chris Baldwin, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman and Johnny Whitaker, and we will see you along the media path. Johnny, do you have two seconds to, to, sure. po- to pose for a picture Johnny with us? at johnnywhitaker.com or johnnywhitaker.com and pasoporpaso.org. Yes, and we'll have all of that in the show notes for you.